welcome to Forward Looking Leadership, a podcast for visionary executives building future-ready organizations. I'm your host, Dan Freeling. I'm the founder of Contempus Leadership, a coaching practice that helps organizations develop their leadership pipeline through virtually unlimited coaching for their top rising talent. I'm honored to be joined today by Amy Rupert Donovan. Amy is the co-founder of the Integrship Group and a pioneer and seasoned leader in professional coaching. She brings over 25 years of coaching experience, working with everyone from emerging leaders to C-suite executives across industries. Amy is recognized as a master certified coach by the International Coaching Federation and is the co-author of Who's the Boss? Confront the Elephants in the Room, a book about having cringe moment conversations in the workplace. Amy has been my own mentor coach for two and a half years and counting. She has walked with me through the launch and growth of my coaching practice and has been integral to my development, not just as a coach, but as a person. Amy really gets leadership at the highest levels, and you're in for a real treat with this conversation. Amy, thanks for joining me on Forward Looking Leadership. Hey, Dan. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to do this with you today. Same same here. I know it's going to be a fantastic conversation, so I'm excited to get right into it. All right. let's. Well, you and I have a habit of doing that, don't we? <laughs> Now that is true. We've had we've had so many conversations over these years. I know. And- I wish somebody would have been recording half of them. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> That's great. So starting off with some sort of future-looking, almost fortune-telling in some ways, what major changes do you foresee in the business world over the next, say, five or ten years? Oh, coming out of the shoot hard there, Dan. Um, yeah, it's well, first of all, it, it's almost impossible to keep your finger on the pulse of how quickly things zig and zag in business these days. But from my vantage point, you know, working with leaders day in and day out, what I think the major changes I see is probably even more volatility in business than we've even experienced up till now. You know, with COVID, supply chain issues, um, generational transitions going on now, like my generation, the boomers leaving or not leaving, (laughs) Um, the political climate, you know, all this, all this uncertainty that's going on. I do think what we're looking at is more what we're calling volatility. And, you know, it's kind of a negative spin to put on it because um, from, from my generation, right? We'd look at it as volatility or, you know, um, uh, complexity, that sort of thing. Your generation, I think, looks at it a little bit differently. And um, I think, you know, as we move forward in business over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see a massive amount of disruptions coming to um, businesses that are still operating in, in the status quo. I also think uh, one of the things we're going to see in the business world in the next five to 10 years is a, is a pretty good war for talent. Um, I think that uh, it's going to get even fiercer and it's going to become more difficult uh, for organizations to attract people with real leadership chops um, because I think a lot of those people are seeing easy pathways into their own businesses. They're building their own empires and so you've got that, and then you're going to have this war for talent amongst organizations as well. So those are those are some of the things that um, I see initially. Yeah, I love that reframe of volatility, all the, all the VUCA kind of terms yeah, into yeah. disruption, which it really is. And right. that, that can be a positive if you're the one disrupting, or it can be a negative if you're trying to just hang on to the status quo and not get disrupted. Yeah. 
Exactly. Exactly. And with that, you know, when I talk about people having leadership chops, um, I think what we're looking at here, you know, up till now, I witness a lot of what I would call performative leadership um, versus performance-based leadership. Um, and I think that that's going to start to parse itself out in the business world. I don't think it's it's okay anymore in business with all with all this disruption going on for people to spend a lot of or a great deal of time in the in their leadership work managing optics, right? Um, or managing perceptions of themselves as a leader. It's this is going to be about really performing as a leader. And you know, you and I have had plenty of conversations about what that really means. Businesses won't survive that are allowing people to move up into leadership without that performance drive versus the performative piece. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it, it makes total sense. I think with with all this extra volatility and uncertainty and complexity and ambiguity and all of that, it's no longer a luxury to be able to promote the kind of people that are just self promoters into exactly. into leadership roles when you know the whole business can be on the line from not catching a change in the industry fast enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I I think those leaders too, you know, I, I if we look ahead into business and with all the things you just mentioned, I think that leaders are going to have to focus on their people skills 100% and um, we can get into that a little bit later on, but I, I think that uh, the ability to to get results through people versus from people is going to become the norm. It, uh, without it, you won't survive. Yeah. What do you think is driving that shift into that need to actually get results through people rather than you know get results separately from people, and the people are kind of an afterthought? Um. <laughs> Your generation is much more savvy than mine. That's why. <laughs> I'm, this is terrible. I'm going to be trashing my entire generation here, and I'm giving away my age. Anyhow, um, no, I, honestly, I think that's what's driving it. I, I think that um, that and the broadening of opportunity, right? It, it, it's going to be really hard to to keep talent that. Who's going to stick around for command and control when you're gifted, talented, and you can go do your own thing, or you can get much more recognition someplace else? That's yeah. that's what I'm seeing. So there, there's there's a selling to in in this war for talent that you're seeing. There's also a selling of what your organization can do for the the top talent that's out there and it's no longer just you know we're going to take bottom of the barrel people and run them dry and that's going to be it it's like to really succeed in this we're going to need to have people who want to work for us and be able to keep them yeah you know it, it, i'll give you a distinction it's interesting because i just read an article last night about this my generation right um you know i got out of college in the early 80s um and so my generation, we've been through a bunch of recessions, a bunch of downturns. Like when we were in high school, we had the Great Recession of 74, where oil OPIC went crazy, oil prices went crazy. But we've we've gone through a lot of these. I think what it's created is a paradigm in my generation, like I need to keep this job, right? Or I'm lucky to have this job. Your generation and and a little bit younger than me 
you guys came in going, yeah, well, that's the way things are. They're volatile. <laughs> the disruptions happen. And you guys accept that as the norm. Whereas my generation is still standing here going, what the hell just happened? Right? We, we played by the rules and, and yet things, you know, just kept turning end over end. And I think that as we move forward in business, that's, that is the norm, right? That if we're progressing in business and if we're progressing as humanity, things move fast. Things, things are volatile. Things are complex and uncertain. But I think that your generation and, and younger than me are much more equipped for this. We're coming in toward the end of the, the Billy Joel song with the, we didn't start the fire. So we're, we're used to it. <laughs> exactly. And I'm hiding the matches in my pocket right now. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. No, that's really true. And But it, the fire is, you guys, the fire, whereas my generation, we're like, ouch, that's hot, that burns. You guys are like, yeah, that's kind of warm. All right, we're just moving on. So you're really chill about the whole thing. And and I think that's going to produce a whole new genre of leaders. Uh, and already is. I mean, Dan, your case in point, right? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting perspective of of it not being a negative, but it being a positive, a disruptive force and something that this next generation of leaders can really take the reins on and and move things forward with. What about instead of the next five or 10 years, what about the next 50 years? Okay. And I know we, you know, you don't have an exact answer to this and no one could possibly have an exact answer, but I like to kind of push this out a bit and see what people think of the next 50 years. Yeah. Well, there's a lot smarter people out there than me on this topic, Dan. Um, the two I like to keep my eye on are Tony Seba um, and James Arbib. Um, those two, they did the... Um, the paper Rethink X. It's the Rethink X people, yeah. okay. Yeah. And these guys, um, you know, for those of you who don't know, that Rethink X is basically a think tank dedicated to rethinking humanity. They kind of zero in on five foundational sector disruptions. And Tony Seba's got like an amazing track record of being able to call the next disruptions out and way before they come. And I think in, in following these guys and, and looking at their work and their research, I, I think it's a lot of what we've been talking about up till now is a lot of just a lot of disruption, but disruption is going to become the norm because in disruption is innovation, right? And I think that we're in the next 50 years, I don't even think we can fathom where we're going to be 50 years from now. The tide is definitely turning in, in our world, right? Old ways are starting to, to fall away, be exposed. Um, this is more um, what's collective shifting than I've ever seen in my whole lifetime. And we're shifting, I think, for the better. And, and let me explain that because I think sometimes we're – a lot of us can look around, just turn on the news for a few minutes and say, oh my gosh, the world's burning down, you know? But yeah, you got to burn stuff down before you can rebuild it, right? The, the forest replenishes itself by burning down and, and new growth comes. And I think that's where we're at right now. Um, and, you know, for all the reasons I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, supply chain, generational issues, climate change, all that stuff is is kind of burning the, the old forest 
but the new the new growth will come up under it. And so I have a very optimistic outlook for the next 50 years. Um, you know, there used to be this, this song when I was growing up in, in the seventies, um, the, the age of Aquarius, was, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. And it went on to say harmony and understanding, you know, it's all about peace and harmony and everything. Well, the, I think what they they were missing in that song was, yeah, but everything blows up first. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and so I think we're kind of in that place right now, but there's there's generations that are being born into this, right? Into this volatility that is going to equip you to move forward in ways that we can't even imagine right now because we're so mired in our old paradigm still. So, yeah. That's, yeah, that's a, I don't know. Did I give you a prediction or did I just, I don't know. There, that, that's one of those questions I love asking because there's, there's obviously no accurate answer at this yeah. point. We can't, we can't tell until 50 years from now. And I, I think that that's a really great metaphor though of the, the forest fire coming in and, and actually being replenishing rather than being something to completely despair about. Cause it could be so easy to fall into oh, yeah. despair with all the things that are broken right now. And seeing it as a, a chance to reset is, is really refreshing. Yeah. And if it's my little fantasy, I just don't want anybody disrupting it because I'm just <laughs> hanging on to that. <laughs> Disruption for, for everyone, but us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so in thinking of these changes over the next five or 10 years, or even the, the longer term ones, I know that you've been an executive, you work with a number of really high level executive clients at major companies. What characteristics do you see in executives who are truly visionary? Mm. Oh, gosh, there's so many things. Um, yeah. And, and when you see them, you know them, right? When you see a leader that is really visionary and really gets it, um, it's, it's evident. And so let me think about this for a second. I think the, one of the things that I see in leaders who are truly visionary is that they put people before results because they know the results come from the people, right? And if you're a leader with a vision, um, I've, I've seen it go both ways, right? There's leaders who will impose their vision on the enterprise, right? Here's my vision. Here's how we're going to do it. And then there are leaders who enroll people into their enterprise. Now with me saying those two things, those are two very, very different approaches. And I'll give you an example. Um, Dan, you've met Karen, my business partner. Um, Karen was the CIO of Miller Coors Beer. And before that, she was the CIO at Kraft Heinz. When she was at Kraft Heinz, um, one of the things she did when she took that role, I think they, Kraft Heinz is in 80 different countries around the world, if I remember cor correctly. But one of the things Karen did when she started in that role was she got in a plane and she flew around to all the locations because she wanted to hear from people. What were their challenges? What were their ideas? What, what's possible um, within, the, within the enterprise? And she got a good feel for it. And by doing that, by listening to people, hearing them out, 
by being able to, to hear their ideas and, and how they want to innovate within the organization. She was able to form a vision, but now she had relationships behind that vision. And what she wound up doing was enrolling people into her vision, into moving the enterprise in the way that she saw it based on not just her opinion coming from the outside in uh, as the new CIO, but from the place of people who have been there, who have worked there, who understand the organization, who understand the culture. And so she had, I mean, her, her engagement scores were over the top, you know, and she was able to really enroll people and get something done in that role. That's a beautiful story. And I I love that it's not, you know, we're going to just be good to people and that's the end of the story and just have everyone like me. I think it's the the way to get to those serious business and she worked in you know serious serious businesses that are publicly traded companies and in C-suite roles and everything like that and the way she got there was by starting with the people yeah yeah and that's and she she knew in every role she had um and I can say this now I'm not breaking confidentiality because she talks about it I I coached Karen through most of her her career mm-hmm. on and off and um she, you know, she always put people first and, and her results came because of that. So it's, it's a, it's an act of faith on a leader's part, right. To, to put people first because we're so programmed to just drive for those results. But again, I'm going to go back to getting results through people. You got to start with the people. So that's that's one thing, Dan, that I see as a characteristic of a, of a visionary, a really good visionary leader. Um, the, the other thing is that I see leaders who um, they will build a team around them that is very diverse. And that's not done too often, right? From, from my vantage point, I see a lot of leaders building teams of people they know will not give them headaches. Really good visionary leaders want some of those mavericks on their team, right? A few that will give them headaches um, because they're going to bring something that either the leader themselves doesn't have or other people on the team don't have. So they, they build these diverse teams of people who are not like them knowing that they need those diverse viewpoints and and to bring in new ideas and fresh ideas that wouldn't be thought of if everybody was in groupthink on the team. And that's that's not easy for a leader, right? To to have uh broad diverse teams like that because it's some then sometimes it's hard to to manage or to lead people who aren't like you. But that's that's what makes it all worthwhile, right? Is you have these teams, these high-performing teams, and you'll find just about all high-performing teams are very diverse. And you can't afford not to at this point because you know your your competitors or you know other completely separate organizations are are bringing in some of these different perspectives, and it, it can be tempting to want to keep it comfortable. And you know, people who don't challenge you and people who don't force you to think differently, but that's not obviously going to result in anything that's that's different or that's revolutionary yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a part of that too, Dan, is that um, I, I remember one leader saying to this, this to me one time that he said, I make a habit of hiring people every now and then that scare me a little. Mm. I said, oh, what, what does that mean to you? And he said, well, it means to me that they could take my job. And, <laughs> and I think that's gutsy, right? That's yeah. really gutsy leadership is because that's another thing is, you know, some of this protectionism, the, the protecting of the title, the role, the power that comes with it. Um, yeah, hire people that scare you a little. Yeah, they're going to be a little harder to manage. They're going to be a little harder to lead. However, they're also going to bring something that will really move the team forward or the enterprise forward. So I think that's a, a kind of a sidebar to, to the, the other thing, to the diverse team. Yeah, and that's, that, that's such a sign of a good leader in my experience is the, the person who's self-confident enough to not worry about, you know, is this person going to make me look bad because they're so good. It's it's the opposite. It's, you know, look at the team I can assemble, look at the team I can right. bring with me. And that being a real status symbol of positive leadership, I think is is something I've seen over and over again. Yeah. 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 And another part of that too, I'm just rambling on here, Dan. Yeah, please. This is great. <laughs> um, I, I think that um, really good visionary leaders, they facilitate solutions versus create them, right? Let me explain that a little bit. Um, one of the things that some leaders do, and as soon as I say this, there's going to be everybody going, oh, yeah. That person. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that person, right? <laughs> the one who leads by title, right? Versus, you know, leading with, with other qualities that we'll talk about in a second, but they lead by title and they... Um, have a need to be the smartest person in the room all the time. And that means that they, they put the onus on themselves to be the solution maker. Right. And so there's a lot of things that go on in that dynamic. They never give their team the opportunity to shine, right. To bring in solutions. They don't, the team doesn't develop because if the leader's always the smartest one in the room, they're just there to serve that. And so a lot of my work with executives has been for them to let go of that. Um, and it's tough, right? As people move up the ladder into leadership, one of the things that's very difficult about that is that mostly they've been rewarded for doing, right? For creating solutions, for being the smartest one, having the best ideas, all those things. Their whole career, they're rewarded on that. Well, now when they move into leadership, that flips, right? You're no longer the one doing all that. You're there to facilitate that. And that's really hard for people to give up. A lot of the reasons, and one of the things I'll often say to, to people moving into senior leadership roles and things is, um, you know, you're no longer a doer. <laughs> you are a facilitator and you are here now your your job, you're currently in the people business. You may have been a brilliant engineer. You may have been a brilliant finance guy. You may have been, uh, you know, a, a a whiz girl at, um, you know, whatever. But now you are in the people business, and that's a really hard transition for people to make. Um, for some people. Yeah, and I've I've found that framing of it to be really helpful in working with 
clients too who are going into these at my at my practice like director level or vp level mm-hmm. positions is it, there's almost like a um a feeling of not doing their job if they focus on these sticky people issues and on developing people and all of that and it's that that is your job as a leader is to work through people and it's not a side thing that you do for a few hours a week that's your main job is to to be that facilitative leader Yep, exactly. And it's a tough transition. It is. And you're so right about that switch of like, you know, you you almost always get promoted by being a great individual contributor in any industry. And all of a sudden it's, nope, that's not what you need to do from this point forward. You really need to bring up and bring along a team. And what I've what I've often seen is that the 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 leader that is the one who is the lone genius who creates all these ideas themselves Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that can work to a point, but it's capped at the limit of that leader's ideas. And it just gets to a point where that can't win against someone who can bring in so many other ideas and do it well and do it on a sustained basis. Yeah. 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 I think like I look at leaders like Elon Musk, right? It's coming to mind for me too. Yeah, love him or hate, it doesn't matter. Um, but he, you know, he's starting to really appear like a leader who's working in an echo chamber, right? Everybody's just, you know, giving him his own reflection back that you're the smartest guy in the room. You make calls, right? And he's not listening outside of his own head. So, you know, we're, we're witnessing, I think, a, a pretty big example of that in public right now um, with Elon Musk. So he's, he's, he's going to become a poster child for uh, leadership programs to come for many years, I think. Yeah. And Steve Jobs went in the opposite way um, a lot where he started off, as you very well know, like much like that of being the the lone genius. And then it took him getting fired and going sort of into the wilderness and then coming back to start really working with people and doing his best work. Yep. Yep. Which is, is a great example, too, because one of the other things that I think, you know, a good visionary leader brings is an element of self-mastery. Right. Um if they're not growing as a human being, <laughs> they're they're going to get stagnant, and they're and they're going to make the enterprise stagnant as well, right? Because and so, what do I mean by that? Self mastery, um, it's it's really it, it comes down to our emotional needs, right? Do you have a need to be the smartest guy in the room or smartest girl in the room? Um, do you project your fear? in dysfunctional ways that sets off, and I'm going to use another term here that's being widely used, but, but not well understood is psychological safety, right? When the leader is, is invested in their own development as a human being, when they're able to manage and regulate their own emotions and understand themselves and have a high degree of self-awareness, I think that makes a huge difference for how it impacts the culture of the organization. Like it or not, when you're leading an organization, number one, you don't get to have a bad day. Every good leader I know, that's their philosophy. You don't get to have a bad day because you are modeling behavior for the entire enterprise, and it certainly does trickle out through the whole culture. And so 
working on yourself as an individual. And I do, you know, uh, people think when I say executive coach, I sit there thinking, you know, I'm working on them, putting together great strategies and budgets and blah, 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 all that stuff. No, a lot of times it's around this stuff, self-mastery. And, and how do I gain more awareness for myself so I can bring more of myself to this role as a leader and make the organization better because of it? I think that is one of the hallmarks of a great leader. Wow. I, I, yeah, I think that's spot on. And um, people can, you're then enabling people to bring their best and bring their contradictory or contrarian opinions to the for and to bring their energy and their commitment to the fore. And it's less about, you know, how am I going to manage or work around this leader because they're having an off day? And it's it's much more of, you know, how can I be fully enabled and freed up to do my job and work in the best way possible? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, a, you know, that's on top of what I just said, there's an element to that of the leader be, being able to bring a, an element of vulnerability of themselves as a human being. And I'll give you an example. And it's, I, I worked with a CEO years ago who um, pulled his whole organization together. They, they had an annual, it was a multinational organization, but they had an annual gathering at their corporate headquarters and brought a lot of people from throughout the whole organization there um, each year. And one of the things he decided to do one year was to put a very personal message on everything. And the company had been growing in leaps and bounds. Um, they, I think they were up by about 35%. Everybody's hair was on fire. You know, everybody was working, but things were good, right? The organization was doing really well. And one of the things he noticed was that this, this, you know, uptick in, in, um, productivity and, and everything was starting to result in people not having much of a life. They were working constantly. They were there weekends, long days. Um, and so he decided that was going to be the central theme of his message. And one of the things he did was get up in front of the whole organization and, and they were live streaming out to, to other locations. So this really did get in front of everybody. Um, he talked about being on his fourth marriage and he talked about being estranged from his kids and how much he had to work to get back to those kids and, and bring them back into his life. He talked about his battle with alcoholism and he talked about how nothing in this world is worth giving those things up and that he is not asking that of anyone at all in the organization that we can get the job done, but not at the expense of what's most important to us because what's most important to us is why we're here working. And he told his whole personal story in front of the whole organization. And I, I thought, wow, that is leadership, right? That is leadership. And the whole organization, I, I actually, he's long retired, but I still do work in this organization. The whole organization it's one of the, the few companies I say I, I work with that I can say they truly kind of behave like a family. And I think that's because this CEO years ago set that tone into the organization. What an example that the genuine vulnerability yeah. and not for just that CEO offloading it to people, but as a way to demonstrate and inspire 
everyone working in that organization to, yep. to do things differently. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So Amy, in addition to working with lots of executives, you also work with a lot of rising leaders, a lot of rising talent. Mm, yeah. What are some unusual qualities? So I like to say besides the, you know, they work hard and they, you know, go above and beyond and that kind of stuff. What are some unusual qualities you look for in super high potential talent? Yeah. So I, one of the things I think first and foremost that I see in, in, you know, um, this young rising talent is hunger for learning, right? That is just part of their DNA. They're, they're hungry to learn and not for the sake of just acquiring information, but it's, it's really this desire to know more and to be better, you know, to, to just be better themselves as a person who has an expanded knowledge base um, and sometimes for no other reason, except just the, for the sheer joy of learning. I, I think that's one, one thing. Um, I also think that the ability to, to fail forward, to, to take risks, right? Um, not, not careless risks, right? But maybe, um, calculated risks, and, but to take them, especially when they're young, right? Take those risks and be willing to fail. Yeah, it hurts. Yeah, you got to suck it up. <laughs> yeah, it can be embarrassing sometimes. But I think anybody who gets to be my age will tell you the best stuff and the most growth comes from those failures. We learn more about ourselves in failure than we do in triumph. And I think that's what kind of, um, what's that word I'm looking for? How you, you harden metal, metal, you know, it's, it's like forging it in fire, um, that you harden your, yourself as a leader, not meaning you harden your heart, but you harden yourself that, yeah, I can take risks and I can fail and I can survive that. I think that's such an important thing to know. So when I see young people who are willing to take some calculated risks, um, I, I think, wow, they're going to be a great leader someday. Yeah. And those, those sound very connected to that, that hunger for learning and that calculated risk-taking. I think you learn so much from actually being in the arena, actually doing it rather than just being pulled back and watching others do it or reading about it in a book or something. It's that actually being in there and doing it is so critical. Yeah. 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 I think, and in, in, to that point, Dan, there's also a piece of this too, where I, when I see young rising leaders, they don't take on or accept roles or pursue roles that they think will be the next rung on the ladder to get them up the ladder. They take them to learn, right? What don't I know about? What would be completely new? What would stretch me and challenge me? They take roles and they pursue roles based on that, not what's going to get me ahead. And I think that's really important um, because <laughs> let me tell you, the ones that keep taking roles and pursuing roles because they think they're going to get to the next rung of the ladder, it, it never ends well. <laughs> so, and especially from a leadership 
place, you know, people who were able to move up the ladder into leadership roles, but never took a risk. And it was all calculated to, to move up that ladder. Um, they don't make really good leaders because they stay safe. They stick to the status quo. Um, they do what they think they should do versus what really needs to be done. Does that make sense? It it makes total sense, and it's something I've I've seen over and over again mm. too. And it it's countercultural in some ways, where there's this idea that you know the the best and brightest quote unquote are the ones who are going from easy, risk free, if prestigious thing to the next, and mm-hmm. it's just not the case for the really game changing leaders that they've they've done that really safe route. Um, and I, I've never seen someone who I really admire who's, who's just done that and tried to look good on paper. Yeah. 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 And it it never ends well, as I said. (laughs) So, um, and I think what has to go along with that, Dan, um, some of these things we're talking about too, is I think it's got to almost be in a person's DNA to be humble and unassuming. Um, yeah, we've all got egos, right? <laughs> and they can get wounded and, and damaged. But I, I think our willingness, you know, to, to be vulnerable, which we talked about a minute ago, has to be underpinned by this unassuming humbleness. And that we, whereas we're confident in who we are and what we can bring to things, there's also that's balanced with this, well, I don't know everything. There's a lot to learn. I'm going to make mistakes, right? So there's, there's got to be this balance between this confidence and this, this ability to be unassuming and humble. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a tightrope walk, right? Because if you're not confident, it's really hard to lead people, right? If you don't have some element of confidence, but there's also, you know, the needle can go too far on that. And it's not that overconfidence of people can smell that from a mile away exactly. too. That that where they have that real insecurity that's just permeating out, and they're acting much more brave or confident or dominant than would be expected in that situation. It's just like I don't want to work for this person. I think most I think most people I've never met someone who's like that's great. I really want to yeah. work for that person. So yeah, and it, it does remind. We've talked about this before. It reminds me a lot of that Jim Collins level five yeah. leadership of that paradoxical com- um, combination of extreme humility and extreme drive for the organizational results and and that going hand in hand. But it's a, it's a strange one to describe because it's, you know, it's not something that I think people outside of studying the leadership space or people who really pay attention to this can get right away. Yeah. And I, and I'm still <laughs> on the fence if that can ever be developed, right? If it can, the only the only way I feel it can is through the individual pursuing their own self development, right? That's that's where it's at. Because if you if you look at you know I talked a few minutes ago about emotional needs, um, you know we, we all have emotional needs, and and but where they get out of hand is usually well, like somewhere along the line in our lives we didn't get some of those needs met. And so we're acting out on them through our, the rest of our lives and in various and unhealthy ways. Right. So let's just give an example. Um, 
you know, I, I used to have early on in my early leadership days, I had a need to be recognized, right. And acknowledged. And so what, how that translated was for me to keep just saying yes to everything, right. Even the absurd, the impossible. And it was like, give me the most impossible. I will make it happen. Well, yeah, I did. And let me tell you what the cost of that was. <laughs> it was enormous, enormous. I was, I, you know, you can only get away with that for so long. I started paying for it in my health, in my relationships, in my own um, self-image, how I saw myself in the world, right? I always felt like it, it, I wasn't measuring up um, because the truth is that particular need um, to be acknowledged and, and, and uh, is that had to come from within me, but constantly trying to get it from the outside, it would never have been enough. No matter how much I accomplished, no matter how much, even the praise, the accolades, oh, you're amazing, all that, it just rang hollow because I hadn't satisfied that need within myself with myself. So I think that's important to look at is, is, you know, for young leaders is what, what am I maybe running around trying to get met? Um, what emotional needs or whatever, what am I trying to get met through my work, through my job, through the people around me that I need to take care of myself because it will get in the way. It will get in the way of, of what you're wanting to accomplish. Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that so freely, Amy. And I, I do think you see a lot of people, as you said, you know, where the they're paying the price for it at, at that point. But there'll there'll be a lot of really senior seasoned leaders who have just very clear unmet emotional needs, and they're not addressing them in any productive way. And it 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 always comes out; it's always evident. Yep, we've all seen it, right? Their needs are bleeding out all over the place and everybody's sitting there with their hands folded on the table, just not saying a word, right? And so we've all been witness to that. So I think, I think, you know, people younger than me, your generation, Dan, I think you guys are a lot more savvy to this. Um, and you're, you're a lot more comfortable with addressing those things and diving into those things. Um, than my generation and older ever were. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I've mentioned this before that I, I think most of my clients are freely open about concurrently working with a therapist or mental health professional mm-hmm. too. So I think there is this tide shifting of that being rightly seen as you know equivalent to physical health or anything else that shouldn't be a source of shame or embarrassment that you're you're seeking that out. So yeah, I think, I think there is awesome. a shift there. That's fantastic. I love to hear that. And I I think, um, you know, I think that's, this is one of the things that's going to impact our ability to innovate and to move forward and, and disrupt right in the future too, is, is that the, your, the younger rising generations are bringing that to it. And it's so important. It's so important. Yeah. I mean, what's a, big leadership or management question that you've been giving the most thought to lately? Uh, you know, it's interesting, Dan. I think that the the biggest one I've been thinking about, and I, I've been holding this one for years. In fact, my business partner, Karen, and I, we talk, t- 
toss this around quite a bit. What if leadership was a standalone profession? I, I, I often wonder about that and, and say, you know, is leadership, good leadership transferable anywhere, right? Across from one industry to the next. Yes. People move around all the time from industries and, and bring leadership qualities or technical qualities or whatever it is. But what if we looked at it as a standalone profession? What would that look like? And I sit with that question quite a bit. Um, because I, I really feel we might be heading in that direction. What do you mean by the standalone profession? I, I have a decent sense of it, um, but can you expand upon that a little bit more? So as you know, Dan, and I'll tell your listeners, I, I was on the ground floor of bringing coaching up as a profession um, starting about 30 years ago, right? Coaching is only 30 years old, if, for those of you who don't know that. Um, and I actually worked with Thomas Leonard, um, who th- was the founder of professional coaching and was taught by him. And so I have firsthand experience of, of, of a profession emerging from nothing, right? <laughs> and what does that look like? So what that looks like is one of the first things we had to do is say, what's different about this profession than all the others, right? What makes coaching different than teaching or consulting or psychotherapy and all that? So you have to look at what are the distinctions? So what makes leadership, if it was a profession, what, what, what's, what distinguishes it from other professions, right? So you start there and then you start to look at, okay, what are the core competencies of this emerging profession? right? That's, as you know, Dan, that's one of the things I helped do. I sat on the committee and where we developed the the core competencies for the, the coaching industry, which is now the foundation of all coach training. And so if we were to look at what are the, the you know, if, if you type in Google, right, what are the, the competencies of leadership, you're going to get like a million pages of a million different things. One of the things about moving something into a profession means that you have an agreed upon set of core competencies that is across the board, right? That that is how it's defined. And then not only do you have those competencies, then you have ways to measure the efficacy of those competencies and how they are executed, right? So you have to set up criteria about how do you how do you assess it? How, how do you um, grow from one level to the next? So there's a lot of components into creating something as a standalone profession. Um, some people, there, there's so much out there about leadership. And some people might say, well, it already is, right? Not really, not really. Um, there's a great book that... Um, Oh gosh. And now I have to remember his name. I had a great conversation with this guy. Is it, The book is Leadership BS. Do you remember, Dan? Because I told you about the book. I don't remember the author name. I, I've read that book after you recommended it though. Yeah. It's a, it's a great book because it really does call BS on a lot of things we think about leadership. A lot of these practices. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, but it's because it's, it's def- anywhere you go, you're going to get a different definition of it. Right. What if we standardized it? What if we standardize it in a way like we did in the coaching industry where it's global, right? How does, 
how do the, the, the core competencies of it, how does it transfer culturally, right? What if we had a global definition of leadership? That would be kind of interesting, don't you think? It's, that's really interesting. Um, do you see this as sort of branching out from what used to be the, the realm of like an MBA yes. cohort or something? Yes, yes. Now, I know MBA programs are getting a lot better. Um, they're, they're a lot more real world application. But my God, when I was in school, it, it was all theory, right? And then people get on the job and all of a sudden those theories start you know, blowing up like 4th of July fireworks. And theory is great, right? In, in an academic world, we need theory, but we also need to be able to understand how to transfer theory into real world applications. And I know that there's a lot more alliances going on now with MBA programs, working within organizations, solving organizational problems, that sort of thing. But yes, I do think this goes above and beyond MBA because one of the things, and I know a million people with MBAs and they'll be the first ones to tell you, when I start teaching people people skills, right? As it, like coaching skills, emotional intelligence skills, those sort of things. Um, the first thing I hear from them is, well, I didn't get any of this education in my MBA, <laughs> right? And everything is great in the MBA, but boy, it comes to a screeching halt when you get into messy people dynamics. And, and so there's components of leadership like that, you know, people, messy people dynamics, group think, um, you know, moving teams in ways that, you know, we, we have to look at and construct or deconstruct certain situations so that we have a full understanding of how to move teams through really complex um, areas. So there's so much more that aren't taught. It isn't taught in MBA programs that are part of leadership, the everyday application of it that I think could really apply here. I, I love this. And I kind of backed my own way into this educationally, um, as you know, with the, doing the MBA. And that was, that was great. It was a, it was a good sort of like drive by view of a little bit of each department of a major enterprise. And you know enough about strategy and you know enough about what legal has to do, you know, enough about what HR has to do, you know, enough about what operations has to do, da, 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 da. Um, and then I added on that other master separately because it was, you know, what about the people side? What about these organizational dynamics? What about that? And then the coaching education too of, mm -hmm. okay, that's all great at the theoretical level and let's bring it down to one-on-one -on -one relationships or team relationships. And what does that look like? So I, th I think there's really something here about doing that in a way that doesn't have to be kind of pieced together yeah. and involves the real world application of it. That's, that's fascinating to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I get, I get all animated when I start talking about this because I, it's, it's a big what if question. Right. Um, but I, I think it's worth considering as we, as we look forward, you know, into this fast moving environment, business environment where people are going to need to be adaptable um, they're going to need to be able to be understood too, right? From a leadership perspective, people want to know that they're understood and that they matter and that their contribution is valued. If, if the leader can't support that throughout the enterprise, they're not leading.
You're so right. And the and as you said earlier, the the top talent who has choices and options is gonna walk. They're gonna yeah. go to another organization, they're gonna start their own company, but but they're not gonna stick around. And you're only gonna get the kind of, you know, scared sycophant type employees who are yep. willing to stick around for these places. Yeah. Let me can I just say something for a second because the word scared. One of the things I wanted to to talk about uh, a minute ago and I it slipped my mind is about courage, right? Um, it's one of the things that's why we wrote the book. Um, we did. It's, it's about being able to be integrity based. And what do I mean by that? When I talk about integrity, it's not about morals, right? Everybody knows the morals, the moralistic platform we bring into business, right? When I talk about integrity, this is about personal integrity, meaning your walk and your talk, you're aligned. Everything you do, everything you say, and the way you behave is aligned with what you say is important, right? And when you're in leadership, you're in a fishbowl. People are watching this, right? And the minute you step outside of it, you're no longer credible as a leader. And so that that's one of the components that I would put as part of a leadership profession, right? Is how do you as an individual, align yourself with what you say is most important? And how do you have the courage to live that day in and day out, regardless of what happens? Yeah, it's, I mean, so much of that is part and parcel of coach training. And it's just not really out there in a lot of other places yeah. in the world of this this personal foundation that it, that you call it coach you and it's yeah. just it's yeah. not really out there and it's not part of a lot of this stuff and if it is it's one class on ethics or it's a you know oh. some some sort of like a again like a drive by little snippet of that but it's 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 so integral and having that integrity is something that people can really see and sense and feel from you yep yep and, and it and they're watching right? They're watching. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah. What's a popular leadership or management concepts that you disagree with or think is kind of overhyped? I know there's a lot of fads and buzzwords and all of that out there. Oh, too many to choose from. <laughs> I know this one's an easy one. Fish in a barrel. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, I kind of look at all of them. Here's the deal. I look at all of them and I go, sometimes I just think we make everything too damn complex, mm. right? I mean, out of the think tank comes some massive, you know, leadership or management concept. And it, and it comes in a way that, you know, comes from theory a lot of times and sometimes from real world application. And I, I don't think I can pick any one, Dan, honestly, I don't, I, I, because they all have merit too. There, there's. It's kind of like religion. Okay, this is a good analogy. It's kind of like religion, where all religions have great nuggets and morsels of truth in them. All religions, right? And then some, you know, or or all, depending on who you are, or whatever. You look at it, you go, I don't know about that. I don't know, right? Um, that we get to struggle with these these big concepts. Um, it's the same for me in leadership concepts and, and management concepts is that there's, there's good 
morsels of truth that are applicable, useful day in and day out. And then there's a bunch of garbage too sometimes. A lot of times I'll call it serial filler, mm-hmm. right? So that somebody could get published. They did, you know, 9 billion pages on, on this and there's a lot of serial filler in there <laughs> versus taking just the nuggets out of them. So I, I, I'm not really answering your question with any one in particular, but that's kind of my approach to all of them. That- I think that's a I think that's a fantastic answer because it's, yeah, there there's a sort of a core truth to a lot of these religions and leadership management theories and concepts that is pretty indisputable. And there's yeah a lot of that extra kind of fluff. And then there's a lot of room to kind of bring in nuances that are great. Like it's, it's nice that certain religions go into something in way more depth than others. And there's a lot of wisdom in that too. Yeah. 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 I've thought about it um, much less uh, in the, in the holy realm, but in like the sort of like a, a great restaurant, kind of a realm. And we, we've talked about this a lot in my um, master's class with the group that I was um, really close with in that. But it, it, these sort of ideas of like, you know, it, it'd be like talking to someone about all the restaurants out there and you're like, oh, what makes a great restaurant? And yeah. we all want to come to this really well-rounded sort of like it, it has a nice atmosphere and it has, you know, high quality food and it has friendly service and da, da, da. And then you start parsing that apart and there's places that uh, are really filthy but they have amazing food and you love it it's a great restaurant right you would never go to the bathroom there (laughs) (laughs) i will risk food poisoning for this place exactly and then there's places that are like beautiful and have friendly staff and the food is terrible and it's like this is not a great restaurant so i think there's there's that element too where like you can be a kind of lopsided leader you don't have to be this perfectly well-rounded person in every single regard to to be a leader and i think that's that's kind of refreshing to hear for some people too who might not be that you know every single box is checked kind of a leader but you have something yeah. going on it, it goes into the strength-based stuff a lot but you have something going on that's so good that it supersedes anything else yeah yeah i think it's when you get dogmatic about any one particular approach that's when you run into trouble right? Mm, Blind spots come out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a, that's a really great answer to that one. I, I, I will think about that a lot more, I think after this, but (laughs) I I love that. Um, What's a book or other resource in the leadership realm that you find yourself coming back to the most often? Oh, there's one. I've actually had to buy the book three times now because it's fallen apart. Uh, <laughs> That's a good sign. You know, taping it together and all that. <laughs> I, I finally have it electronically now, but I this is a book I've had around since probably the early 90s. Um it's it's a book called Thinking Body Dancing Mind. And it's it's a it's a Taoist approach. For those of you not familiar with Taoism, you've I'm sure you've all seen the yin yang symbol, right? Um it's a it's a ancient Chinese philosophy. I, um, Dan, you know this, I, I studied and um, practiced and taught martial arts for over 30 years. And Taoism is a philosophy that it's the underpinning of a lot of Chinese martial arts. So I spent a lot of time studying it. And I stumbled upon this book back in the early 90s. And um, it, 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 I'll have to get you the um, author's names. I'm hoping it's still in print, actually. Um, but this book 
takes it and it's written for sports, business, and life. It tells you. So, um, these guys that wrote the book, they were, um, they worked with a lot of professional athletes. So it has a heavy emphasis on sports, but they write a perspective about business for each concept they put out. And what they'll do is they'll take like, let's say something about, um, confidence. Okay. Let's just take that. And maybe you're struggling with confidence or you've moved into a new role uh, uh, and you're finding yourself not as confident as you have been. <laughs> you're kind of, you're out of your comfort zone, that sort of thing. It's the quick read chapters, but you can flip right to that chapter. And it, what it talks about is the Taoist approach to that, right? To confidence and how to perceive it. Now, Taoism is really about balance um, and, and, you know, the, that's what the yin yang symbol is all about is, is balance. So for example, one of the things that, uh, as an example would be, if you don't know, um, hardship, how can you know a fulfilling life, right? You have to have both. You have to have that contrast in order to experience the richness and wholeness of all of it. And so to take that kind of a, a, a thought process, right, or th that kind of thinking and apply it to everyday business challenges and, and um, things you will encounter, uh, this book has been an invaluable research or, or a resource for me because it, it gives me perspective. If I'm struggling, it gives me, okay, right now I'm struggling, but that's so that I can move into the other side right? Into the balance side. How do I move myself across into the balance? And it always gives me that perspective. So it's, it's one of my all-time favorites. It's, again, it's thinking body, dancing mind. That's a beautiful concept. I'll definitely yeah. check that out. Yeah. What do you see as the future for coaching? Uh -huh. Loaded question. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, 30 years ago, boy, we were just all walking around going, isn't this cool? And here we are now. It's a global phenomena. And so um, I think Dan right now, and you and I have chatted about this, I think we're at a crossroads in coaching right now. Um, one of the things that most people don't know, like when I started this, I'd say, I'm a coach. And people go, oh, what sport, right? Nobody had any idea what we were up to. Um now people know what it is, right? And more and more people are coming into it and there's money in it now, right? Because organizations are starting to embrace it. So we're seeing, you know, um, coaches are not struggling to make a living or to <laughs> constantly explaining what coaching is. It's starting to become accepted as the norm. Here's where my concern comes in, Dan, is that being on the ground floor of all this, I can tell you one of the things about coaching is that it was intended to be a disruptive industry. We were here, we came on the scene to disrupt how people interact and communicate, right? And in such a way that it would create transformation. Now, my concern about the industry right now is where the money is, is within the organizations. Organizations are interested in one thing, one thing only, results, right? But if we're coaching people for res results only, it becomes extremely transactional and watered down from what its true power is. You're, you're, in other words, organizations are trying to, it's the tail wagging the dog instead of 
you know, the dog wagging the tail where coaching would go, well, let me tell you how to get the best bang for your buck. It's not that popular when you tell them that because it's like, yeah, I understand you want results. You want this guy, send me a sales guy. You want his sales up 30% by the end of the year. That's great. Got it. Okay. But me working with this person to help them understand who they are, what motivates them, what shuts them down, what they want to aspire to and how that fits with the goal the organization has for their performance, that's much more powerful. And so one of the things I'm, I'm a bit concerned now and why I say we're at a crossroads is that we can't sell out, right? We can't sell out. We've got to keep educating and driving for this transformational experience. And um, so for the future coaching, I, if we can get past this hump, right? I think if we keep dry, and there's plenty of us out there that that really understand it and are doing it in in a way, you know, I've I've turned down a lot of work because organizations want something different. That's great, but just don't call it coaching because it's really not. <laughs> so, um, but I think if we can make it through this, I think we have a, a real good shot at. Um, coaching growing to be something that is just becomes the norm of what organizations and people do to get better, to do better and to reach their highest potential. Um, I also see the future of coaching to move more in the realm. And Dan, you know, you and I've talked about this plenty of helping people to reshape their paradigms you know, we, we can look throughout all of our, our communities, our, our countries, our worlds, our cultures, and we see people that, and, and for a perfect example, maybe grow up in poverty, they're stuck in a paradigm of poverty, right? They don't have a paradigm of something different. And I think where coaching's going is to help people pierce those paradigms and to open a window to a broader possibility by helping people to experience things versus just imagining them, to experience them in a way that the walls of their paradigm start to fall down. And I think that as we move forward in this industry, we're going to be looking a lot more at paradigms. I'll give you a great example. I, I have on my in my office hanging on the wall is um, a picture of, Barack Obama with his head down and a, and a little African-American boy touching his hair. It's a great one. Uh, yeah. And that to me is, is how we shift paradigms, right? Because in that moment, that little boy in, in his paradigm became the little boy that could become president next. And so that's what I think our work is going to start to really focus in on and, and be known for. Yes, it sounds like that transformation being front and center in in coaching, and then that broader education of. And I think once you see it, and once you see other failed transformation efforts over and over again, you can't help but see that something deeper is needed to really move an organization. Yes, in a in a future direction that's that's better for the results. Um, but it's so easy to get the you know the kind of quick hit next quarter will look better if I, and back to your optics point at the beginning, it will look better if I do this rather than it will be better. 
Yep. And yeah, coaching is the number one thing I've seen to be able to make that leap. And I think you're starting to see it from some really sharp business people are starting to see that coaching really works and it's become less of this kind of like fluffy, you know, new age kind of a thing. And it's (laughs) the real transformational coaching is, is serving a, a really core leadership and business purpose too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think we have really exciting times ahead, Dan. And, um, I, I'm so happy to be able you know, as I, I, age more and more to pass the torch to people like yourself. Um, because I, I think we're just scratching the surface right now of, of what the difference coaching can make in the world. I, I really appreciate that, Amy. And I know you've, you've done so much to do that for me and for a number of other people. And it really means a lot. So I think that's a good place to, to leave our conversation. Yeah. This has been really fantastic. Where can listeners learn more about you, what you're up to and get in touch if they'd like to connect? Well, um, they can go to my, my uh, website, our website, Karen and mine is called the Integrship Group. And I, I think Dan, you're going to put a little something. Yeah, I'll, throw, I'll throw links to that in there. Yep. I, I won't bother to spell it like I normally have to. Um, it's, but I'm also involved in a new venture, um, with another business partner, Ilias Skultori, who, you know, Dan. And um, Ilias is fantastic just for everyone, <laughs> everyone listening. He's a, a real coach's coach and it, it really understands the, the art and the science of it. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're focusing in on. Ilias and I, um, in 2024, will be launching what we call the craft dot community, um, where it's it's for coaches and people interested in coaching to really come and learn the blend of the art and science of coaching. Um, and, and it's it's um, it's like the way we like to talk about it is we're going to start to to teach and facilitate coaching 2.0, the next the next generation of what this can look like. So we're really excited about it. That is so exciting. I, I definitely encourage any aspiring coaches to to check that out and, and get in touch with Amy and Elias on that. I'm personally just very excited to see where that that goes. And I think it's something that's very much needed. So thanks again for for joining me, Amy. So we'll we'll definitely put all those links in the show notes. And listeners, thanks for joining us once again. If you got something out of the show, please share it with a colleague and leave a quick review on whatever podcast app you're using right now that'll help us to spread the word so others can find us and amy thanks again for taking the time thanks dan it's been a pleasure and a joy